We're taking a break from Isaiah today. And this is a kind of a mini introduction to the book of Hebrews. Uh, Today I'm going to do Hebrews 1. We'll read that and look at that together. In two weeks we'll look at Hebrews 2. So just a kind of a brief introduction. A couple reasons for that. One, so that uh, Matt can have a, have a break and uh, prepare for his next sermon. Two, we've been in the Old Testament for a while. Been looking at Isaiah. We've been looking at the Psalms over the summer. And so I wanted to do something in the New Testament. Though for picking a book in the New Testament, it sure is full of the Old Testament. Sorry about that. Um, and three, uh, I believe, you know, whenever I, I look at trying to pick something, trying to pick a, a text to look at just for a brief, you know, one-off sermon or two-off sermon, um, I keep getting drawn back to Hebrews. And so that's why, why we're doing this. It's a mixture of, of reasons. And uh, I think together we will be blessed by uh, looking at Hebrews 1 this morning. So um, if you are there already, um, wonderful. You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 1 if you're not there. It is also printed in the bulletin uh, if, you need, if you need that reference. Hear the word of God. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the, toil of glad- with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our hearts, open our eyes this morning to hear your word, to see the incarnate word, the the one who has come with power, with salvation in his hands, to bring us poor people, poor wretched people, 
back to you. Open our eyes this morning as we read your word, as we hear what you have to say to us. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There is something magical about a good backstory. In fictional works, it's a tool to create empathy, to create kind of this ethos, to build suspense for the audience. Both heroes and villains alike can have good backstories, and it often causes you to pause and to think and to, to question the motives and the actions of the characters. I think of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. What a great backstory. Or Batman, the hero with a long and, and hard backstory. Both have highly dramatic histories that almost encapsulate, almost wrap up the entire essence of the character. Well, here in Hebrews 1, we have a backstory that is neither fictional nor rivaled by any other backstory. And this backstory not only sets the stage for the story of redemption, but it also has great implications for our lives because this backstory is all about Jesus. Here in Hebrews 1, we see the greatness of Jesus, the exaltedness of Jesus, and how he invites us into his story. And it's necessary for us because we often fall into a kind of disillusionment or a cynicism about the gospel. Yes, we know the good news. You've heard what God has done to save you, but it's difficult sometimes to see how that really changes things, how that impacts our lives. What's the difference in your life? It's easy to lose track of the grand story in scripture and how it connects to you and me. Along the way, we lose sight, we can think too little of Jesus. But when we see who Jesus is, what his story is, his backstory, his story, we see more clearly our need for him. Too often we have the wrong focus, looking too much at our own story instead of finding our place, finding how God calls us to be a part of his story. So as we look at Hebrews 1 this morning, we'll see how Jesus is the fulfillment and true focus of the biblical story and that we must hold fast to the revealed word, let go of our self-centered narrative and trust in Christ so that we may share in his victory over sin. I'll say that again. Jesus is the fulfillment, the true focus of the biblical story, and we must hold fast to the revealed word and let go of our self-centered narrative and trust in Christ so that we may share in his victory over sin. And I've broken down this text today in three points. Um, they're, they're overlapping a bit. They go throughout the whole chapter. Uh, so it might be helpful just to look at the outline and follow along there. So first, we see in Hebrews 1, the ultimate word. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. If you want a succinct description of the life and times of the Old Testament, there it is. In that short sentence, we have the themes of God's faithfulness, God's testimony, the obliviousness or hard-heartedness of our religious forefathers, and the long-suffering of God's word through the prophets. 
And this is the beginning of the backstory of Jesus. This is the backdrop and the contrast to show us just who Jesus is. Verse two continues, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Bam. Case closed. Gospel preached. Let's wrap up the letter right here. That's all you need. We're coming out of the gate full force. But why? Why does, why does the letter of Hebrews, what, this, this dramatic entrance, why does the author of Hebrews give us such a huge entrance into the letter? Possibly because this might have been an early sermon. It kind of catches you like a sermon a good sermon does. It, it draws you in right from the beginning. Possible. It might be an early sermon. But even if it's just a letter, even if he's just trying to draw his audience in, what is at stake here? Isn't it that the occasion for writing this letter or sermon was that the Jews and probably some Gentiles who had heard about Jesus but weren't quite sure about him needed to be assured, needed to be lovingly persuaded that Jesus really was the one. He really was the Messiah whom they had been longing for. One of the first things that the Jews would look for in the Messiah is the fulfillment of the Old Testament in this person, in the Messiah. Does Jesus match up with God's description of him in the Old Testament? Well, not only does Jesus match up with the description of the Messiah in the Old Testament, but he is the very word of God, the incarnate word made man. When was the last time that you went into your kitchen and you saw a pile of dirty dishes and said, be clean? And the dishes were immediately cleaned. Or if you went to your window and looked out of the grass and said, be mowed. While our words have power to communicate, they do not have causal power to affect change. Not so with Jesus. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What John is saying <clears throat> is that Jesus is the very Word of God. This isn't just an utterance of speech, but a power to do, to create, to affect real change. And this word that has real power is personal and relational. This word was with God. The word was God. Here in Hebrews, we see, <clears throat> excuse me. Here in Hebrews, we see that this word is he who accomplishes the work of salvation. He who made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and he upholds the universe in his divine power. If then this Messiah is the very power of God incarnate, able to do all of God's holy will, why do we find it so hard so often to listen to him? 
On May 10th earlier this year, a man named Darren Harrison was a passenger on a small, small charter plane flying along the coast of the uh, coast of Florida, and the pilot suffered a medical emergency. He became unresponsive and uh, sent the plane into a dive. Neither Darren nor the other passenger on board had any flight experience, and their pilot was unconscious. Uh, Darren scrambled over to the seats. He got up to the front and kind of pulled, pulled the, the plane up out of the nosedive. That's all he knew to do. He's like, I've, I've, you know, I have this intuition of just pulling it up, getting the, the plane out of the nosedive, getting steady, but I didn't know what to do after that. He picked up the pilot's uh, headset and the wires were frayed on the end of it. Fortunately, the other passenger was wearing another headset. So he's like, I need your headset. I need to call out. So he got the other passenger's headset, put it on, miraculously found, must have found where the other plug was plugged in, plugged it in, and then called out, radioed for help. Robert Morgan was on break at a tower, air traffic controller tower, but his colleagues quickly called him back to help because not only was he an air traffic controller, but he was also a flight instructor. Now, it can, make many, it can take many hours of practice to feel comfortable flying a plane, let alone landing a plane. I haven't done it, but I'm sure many of you know. But Darren didn't have all that time to practice. So what was his only option? It was to listen very carefully to the instructions of the air traffic controller and to do exactly as he directed. Darren landed the plane through the guidance of the one who had the answers, the one who understood what Darren needed to do to be saved. Likewise, we must seek out and listen to the word of God. These words are our guide and our comfort. Where else can we go? As Peter said in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So we see that we must come to the ultimate word, Christ, the ultimate word of God, the word incarnate and the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The second point this morning, we see the ultimate character, Jesus, the ultimate character in the story of Scripture. Verse 3 continues, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That word or imprint or representations in other translations comes from the Greek word characteros, where we get the word character from. Now, this isn't necessarily like a character in a play, but rather what you would expect from a stamp. When you stamp, press a stamp onto a piece of paper, you get the exact imprint of that image. What Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus' nature is the image of God, the Father's nature. They are the same. They are equal. And just as God's nature and character is divine, so is the nature and character of the incarnate word. So what does that nature look like? What does the character of the Son of God? 
Well, we see in the following verses that it is a high and exalted one. Verse four says that he is as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Furthermore, the angels are God's directed winds and his ministers of fire. They are servants, while Jesus is the son, the royal family of the exalted God, worthy to receive worship and adoration from angels and men alike. And it's this reason that Jesus is compared to the angels. These spiritual beings in scripture evoke awe and humility in man. Whenever we see angels interacting with people throughout, uh, throughout scripture, all the New Testament, we see this kind of immediate reaction, this immediate uh, response to an angel coming. It uh, often comes with fear or trembling. Think of the shepherds in Luke 2. When the angelic host appeared to proclaim the Messiah's birth, they were filled with great fear. Even Zechariah, a priest in the house of God, was troubled when an angel appeared to him, and fear fell upon him, even though the message that the angel brought was of great joy. While the angels are certainly of high estate, they were never, never able to make purification for sins or sit down at the right hand of God. The royal throne could only be held by someone greater. Throughout verses 5 through 13, Hebrews draws on many of the Psalms to show the nature of Christ. Psalm 2, 45, 89, 97, 102, 104, and 110 are all used here in this chapter, in this, in this introduction to the, to the sermon or book to show the exaltation of Jesus. These are all portions of the Old Testament describing either God or the Messiah or interchanging the two as uh, often the Psalms do. Verses eight and, eight, eight and nine quote from Psalm 45 saying, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Hebrews is making the case here that Jesus is fully divine. He is the very image of God, the perfect image of God. He is in essence, one with God. And he is able to save to the utmost, able to bear the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. So the Messiah had to be divine, had to be God. However, at the same time, we see the necessity that the Messiah would be man. We see throughout these verses, the imagery of kingship and ruling. And God promised long ago that the Messiah would be the son of David. He would be a man born in the royal lineage. While he bears the character of God, he also bears the character, the very nature of man, fully man and fully God. And perhaps this facet of Jesus' nature makes some sense to our understanding, even, even in our falling, fallen state. We understand that if justice is to be served rightly, that it must be given to one who can bear it. We can conceive that a man may take the blame for the wrongs of another, but if I get caught speeding down the road, I can't petition the law 
to give that punishment to my pet dog or to the pineapple that I just picked up from the grocery store. It's not a worthy recipient of justice. The punishment must be fitting to the transgression, but it also must be given to a suitable recipient. Therefore, we see once again that it was necessary for Christ to be both fully divine and fully man. Jesus has the nature of both God and man. So Jesus is the only one who could accomplish the great plan of salvation. Jesus is the proper focal point of scripture, both Old and New Testaments, because he alone could carry the burden of gospel salvation. And it can be difficult to understand how Jesus can be fully God and fully man. That's something that's a mystery. How can God, how can, how can this person have two natures? But I don't think that the issue that we often have is with our inability to understand this. We can kind of let that rest in mystery. But instead, our problem that we most have with this is that our pride doesn't want Jesus to be the center of the story. While we desire the freedom that the gospel offers, it can be an offense to our pride. It is a lot easier to believe in a Jesus who enhances my story who fulfills my idea of a savior and king. Someone who comes alongside me and says, you're doing a great job. Just keep up the good work because God loves everything that you're doing. That isn't Jesus. This Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on the cross so he could pay the whole cost, so that he could take the whole punishment. Because I couldn't bear even a teaspoon of God's wrath. Do you see his character? Do you see his glory wrapped up in frailty so that he could save you? We can't lay down our warped stories, the stories that make me or you the hero until we see who Jesus is. If you can see your savior for who he is, you can find significance and assurance in him and what he has already accomplished. All all the fears of disappointing others, of not being enough, of failing ourselves can be washed away in the story of who Jesus is because you are already counted as righteous if you are righteous in him. This brings us to the third point this morning, the ultimate victory. Uh, Starting in verse 8 and going to the end, we see two themes uh, finishing out this chapter, eternal rule and cosmic creation. Eternal rule in verses 8 and 9, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And again in verse 13, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And to understand what's going on here in these verses, it helps to kind of understand the role of the king, uh, the ancient kings as they would go out into battle. Uh, The king at that time, unlike, you know, the rulers that we see in our societies today, the kings would go out with the armies. Certainly they were more protected. They would, uh, they would be surrounded by the mightiest uh, of, of men, but they were there on the battlefield. If the armies were defeated, the king would either be 
running in humiliation, be killed, or be taken captive. But if the king was victorious, he would return with his armies with all the spoils of war, and he would ascend to the throne and sit down. Even though there might still be some mopping up to do, even though there still might be some rebellion, some people who don't submit to the king's rule, that, that signaled that the battle had been won, that the victory was sure. The king has sat down on his throne. So when we see in Mark 16 that Jesus ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of God, that was a sign of showing us that the battle is won. And the battle that Jesus has won is not just a side story. It's not just a, uh, a, a small part of what's going on in the history of man. It's the greatest triumph of history. It's the victory that impacts all of creation, the entire cosmos. Sure, there are still some enemies who have not yielded yet to Christ. They have not admitted their defeat. But as we see in verse 13, it's not if God will bring all enemies into subjection, but when. The other theme that we see in these verses is the theme of creation. Verses 10 through 12 say, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. As John said, the word, the word created all things. By the word, the world was created, but because of the sinfulness of man, this world will not remain. What is our hope then? We cannot cling to the things of this world for any lasting significance. Instead, we must cling to the salvation that we find in Christ. Isn't this the very salvation that we see in verse 14 that the, the ministering spirits are sent out for? They're sent out on behalf of this great salvation. Yet again, God will create. He will again bring forth that which is very good, but only those who share in his victory over sin now will share in the blessedness of this new creation. While this may seem reasonable, it's understandable to our minds, we often find our hearts are less willing to release our vice grip on the things of this world. The problem that we have with Jesus' victory really comes back to the problem that the Jews had, the reason why this letter was written. You see, the Jews wanted the Messiah to come to save them from their oppressors in order that they might rise up and take the victory. They wanted the Messiah to lead them into, into glory. They wanted the glory for themselves. They didn't want the Messiah to give them the glory, but they wanted to earn it. You don't want someone to hand you a victory. It hurts your pride. Uh, if I go out and play pickleball this afternoon, lawn day, and my opponent goes easy on me and just hands me the victory, I'm going to be disappointed. 
I want to win with my own power, my own skill. It can make you feel humiliated to receive a victory that you had nothing to do with. Make you feel that those around you think you are so pathetic that they just want to give you the win to make you feel better. The problem with our view of victory is that so often it's short-sighted. It's not focused on what really matters, on the matters of infinite worth. Instead, we focus on things that are temporary or even self-focused, self-centered. Like making sure that we have the last word in an argument or making sure that we get the promotion that we desire. We're getting the respect that would make us happy. Only these things, they cannot make us whole. They fade away like your jeans that used to look good, but now they have holes in the knees and are threadbare. That's why Hebrews was written. Here's a group of proud, independent, righteous, religious people who think they have the plan for what God's Messiah needs to be. But they miss the glory and the beauty of who he actually is. I think that describes the first century Jews, but I think that also describes us pretty well too. If you want to enjoy the unfading and unimaginable glories that Jesus has won, the victory that will have no end, you have to trust in Jesus alone and find your victory in what he has done. If you're here this morning and you've not trusted in Jesus, you haven't turned away from your own plan or from significance based in your own deeds and your own work, if that's you, you must grapple with the fact that, not, that, that only Jesus was qualified to be the central character in the cosmic story. He alone is worthy, but also able to win the battle against sin and to proclaim true victory. And whether you do not yet believe or you have believed in Christ for years, you must come again and again to see who Jesus is, that he is the ultimate word, the ultimate character that is having both the nature of God and man, that he is the only one who has won the ultimate victory. If you're able to see more and more the glory of Jesus, then you will see more and more your need of him. To him be the glory now and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this word. Not only a word on a page, but a word incarnate that has power. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has won the battle, who has sat down in victory. Yes, we still wait, oh Father. We still long to see that victory complete and all joy in our hearts. But until that day, Father, we ask that you would help us to see more clearly who you are, who our Savior is, that we can rest and trust in him alone. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.